Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hi everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to Industry Night on Real Fun DC, our very first show of 2021. Woohoo! I'm very excited. I wish I had a bottle of champagne to pop, but it's dry January, which I'm totally not participating in, but it is a little early in the day for me to pop a bottle of champagne um, on a Monday. But I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, it was um, a crazy year of 2020. We're really fortunate that we've made it through. But I do kind of feel like um, 2020 is sort of hanging on our shoes like a used up piece of tissue paper. We're going to sort of drag it with us moving forward. Uh, but hopefully 2021 we'll get, we'll wipe it off finally and be able to grow in a different way, especially when it comes to the restaurant industry. So first and foremost, if it's your first time tuning in, I'm Nikki Nellis. You may know me from the list, areyouonit.com, an online museum. We've been around for 17 years and we cover every food and wine event happening in the DC metro area. And yes, food and wine events are happening in the DC metro area. They're just virtual. That's all. So you can come on Zoom or come online and do cooking classes and demos and wine dinners, lots of ways to engage in the DC food and wine community. Uh, you may hear me on WTOP. I do regular updates for them. Of course, Foodie and the Beast just celebrated their our 12 year anniversary on uh, 1500. I do that show with my husband, David. Now, Foodie and the Beast is lots of fun, lots of fast food and wine variety show. This shows a bit of a deeper dive, and I'm so thrilled that Tommy McFly and Kelly Collis uh, launched their Real Fun DC platform just in time uh, for full service radio when they closed at the line and gave me this opportunity to move my show over. Uh, lastly, I do want to remind you to mark your calendars. Uh, International Sous Vide Day is on the 26th of January. I am hosting it yet again. And actually, I just hosted a panel that you'll be able to see with Daniel Balud, Kyle Connaughton, and Grace Ramirez. And we uh, talked about what was happening in their industry. Of course, we talked a little bit about sous vide, but it was a really fascinating conversation with three real mover shakers on a national level on how they're handling the pandemic and what they're doing in their businesses. So stay tuned for more info on that. So, like I said earlier, since March, we've been through a lot. This pandemic, the mirror shown to our faces about race in this country, um, an insane election that doesn't ever want to end. Um, I have covered it all here on Industry Night. We've talked to all the movers and shakers. And um, now as we move into 2021, I thought we'd do a 2020 in the rearview mirror and maybe do a little crystal ball of what it's going to look like in the future. And I'm Really delighted that my guests are joining me today. Um, Laura Hayes, you know her as the food editor of the Washington City Paper. And Ramon Santra, you know him as Bard in DC. Um, I thought it makes sense for each of you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. I hate reading bios, I think it's boring. So Laura, uh, it's good to see you. Uh, Hi Nikki. Zoom. And uh, so you and I have known each other for a really long time. Tell everybody a little bit about your role at the City Paper and what you've been doing. Sure. So I've been at City Paper for about four and a half years now on staff. And I'm also the Young and Hungry columnist, um, which is a fancy 
phrase for the fact that I have to crank out something meaningful once a week that goes in print. Um, like everything else during the pandemic, we were hard hit um, and have switched to a monthly publication schedule for the first time in 40 years, but we're hoping that that picks up once our advertisers return. Um, but I, I have a really rewarding job. I get to cover everything that I, I want, um, which primarily is kind of the business side of the restaurant industry. Um, and I focus a lot of my reporting on hospitality workers. I feel that um, especially now in 2020 and 2021, um, you know, the best stories don't always come from the big name executive chef. Um, so it's fun to kind of dig and really talk to the people that are responsible for making and, and serving our favorite foods and drinks. Uh, before I was at City Paper, I freelanced for the Washington Post, the Washington Post Express, um, Food Network, Thrillist, a whole bunch of other spots. Um, before that, I taught English in Japan for three years. Um, so that's a fun resume line. And my background uh, before that was in broadcast journalism. And I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you on. And I'm you know, I do want to maybe later in the show, we can sort of talk about get deeper into how you now or the pendulum swing, which you're a huge part of, of instead of always covering the big fancy schmancy shafts, and now the focus on, you know, the people on the ground, you know, the people, the people behind the people, you know, how they've become more of a focus. I love that. Um, Ramon, hi there. Hi. How are you? Great. Uh, thanks for having me on here. And it's nice to meet you first time. I know. I know. I love that we finally got together. I've been a follower for a long time, but I'd love for people to know a little bit about Bard in DC because you are a practicing lawyer and why you started it and why you started it. And um, sure. What happened? Sure. sure. So I've been a DC resident since 2007. I moved here after graduating law school. Uh, I've, I've been a practicing lawyer since then and now work for a federal agency as an in-house counsel, essentially. Mm -hmm. But uh, ever since I moved here, a big draw to the city have been the bars and restaurants. And I've always followed uh, columns like Young and Hungry and, uh, you know, for the previous writers but since, since the beginning, really interested in what reading about bars, restaurants, trying them out. Um, and at some point I thought, you know, I've been telling a lot of people about these bars and restaurants and maybe I should write about them. Um, and there, there was already so many restaurant blogs at the time. And I figured that writing about bars, which, you know, I like going them, to them. And I've been to over a couple hundred by that time in 2013 was a great way to, you know, get my creative outlet on. And, and owing to my career as a lawyer, uh, one thing I noticed was there was a very extensive amount of information on the Abra website about liquor licensing that a lot of there wasn't really getting any coverage and so quickly uh, I pivoted it from essentially my plan was to review every bar in DC that I've been to and that got kind of old after a while and I decided oh maybe break some liquor licensing news new 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 bars opening a bar is getting their license suspended revoked and then, so that's what I've focused on the last seven years um, and expanded to bars and restaurants in general um, and the um, focus has a lot of been on a Twitter account that I started at the same time as the blog in 2013. Recently launched uh, Instagram earlier this year, earlier in January 2020, uh, and so been focusing on that. It's been a really active, um, you know, been really interesting to be part of that community. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing what social media can do when you have something really powerful to say, right? Um, well, I want to thank you both for joining me. It's great to have you both on. So I want to start in January 2020, which may sound silly because we're in January 2021, but we had such high hopes. And I think we thought the industry was really going in a different direction at that time. If you think about all these new areas that were popping up or all this money that was being spent in the city, right? You know, the wharf had already launched, but the phase three is in process. And then you have Buzzards Point or the point, I don't know what they're calling it these days. Um, and then we have everything going on in Crystal City. I mean, there's all this money. So it just looked like all this stuff was going to happen, right? Bigger names, uh, Danny Myers had just come to town. All these things were happening. So where were your, where was your head at when you thought what I'm going to be covering back then? Laura? I had a crush of openings, right? Um, some of which went forward in the pandemic um, from a couple brave souls, like the folks at Bon Siam and um, the folks at Oyster Oyster. Um, yeah, I thought I'd be covering um, trends related to things like climate change and um, kind of moving more towards plant-based diets. I thought I'd be covering evolving labor models that um, kind of came out of the discussion of Initiative 77 in 2018 and 2019. Um, yeah, I thought I'd be- is kind of on the table right now. Well, it depends on what happens tomorrow in Georgia's election, because if the Democrats take back the Senate, uh, then there's a chance that the Raise the Wage Act could make it all the way through. Um, and that would be great because it would raise the federal minimum wage nationally, um, but it also um, has the potential to eliminate the tip credit system. Hmm. Um, and one of the kind of the, the pain points of that has been um, if it kind of is rolled out unevenly. Uh, for example, if, if DC um, outlawed the tip credit and, and said that the employer has to pay the full minimum wage directly at all times, but Virginia and Maryland didn't, then there is some concerns that people may move their businesses or, or their workers might leave the district. But if it happens at a federal level, um, it might be a different conversation. Um, so I thought I might be covering that. Um, yeah, I just, and then, and then the world ended. Uh, I think the last column I wrote before um, the mayor shut down um, everything was about uh, restaurant workers who have um, turned to Buddhism um, for better kind of work-life balance and uh, to really kind of center themselves in, uh, you know, what is a very challenging profession. Um, so the fact well, that it was something so Zen before something so crazy was, was uh, funny to me. It's only funny that you say that because my last episode of industry night before all things went to pot was, um, Kathy Hollinger and I talking about the explosion of, uh, jobs in this city and how, they couldn't be filled, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you got this. I mean, Ramon, I don't know whether or not you get, but like, I would get text messages and like, what do you know? I need back of house, I need front of the house. I mean, everybody's looking for, everybody was looking for somebody. And then it yeah, just- I mean, Just think of all the new food halls that were, that opened or were slated to open, like La Cosecha. Yeah. I mean, so many, I mean, there's going, there's just such a demand and in this city, we don't have the kind of density as other cities because we can't really build up um, to right. the same extent. And so, and the Metro only runs so late at night and so far, so it's hard to bring people in and get them home. So it's real, the staffing crisis, once things get back to normal, will I think um, heat up again. Well, that's good to hear. 
that that's that's for the end of the show that's predictions predictions <laughs> hold on uh ramon what about for you what like as you're you know your focus is so legalese-ish which i kind of love um it brings a totally different voice to the table in the food scene you know from this side our side our our purview what were you thinking was going to be happening well, I, I believe the DC actually passed some legislation last year that was going to, I think from a customer's perspective, you wouldn't really notice, but I think it had been streamlining the protest process and, and all those things and make it a little less confusing. Um, one thing that was kind of interesting that um, wasn't that from a customer perspective, DC repealed the ban on backup drinks. You know, you might've been at a bar where you try to order two drinks at once and they said, you can't do that. You have to have one person at one drink and that's been repealed. So I think that those kinds of things, there was a little bit of modernization, just a little bit of modernization. Mm -hmm. And I, I think those are the kinds of things bars were looking at. But I think uh, Laura touched upon the the Metro being uh, a big, always a big issue. Uh, you know, I hear from bars, restaurants, I hear from bartenders, particularly and, and other late night restaurants staff about the, the, the hours of Metro, the limited service to the Metro, causing staffing issues, um, you know, on weekdays when, uh, and Sundays, particularly when the Metro closed at 11. So there was always talk about expanding that. I know the Mayor Bowser was always pushing for a later, later opening. I know Charles Allen had proposed uh, some kind of free Metro um, or free, free, I, f I forget what it was earlier this year. And that then that was, I think that might've been in February. And then that just, pandemic happened, that's sort of all gone. So right, those on that note, I'm gonna yeah. end 2020, uh, not end 2020, I'm gonna end this segment because yeah. we're gonna take a break and when we come back, we're gonna get into sort of what happened, how you guys covered things. Not only did restaurants have to pivot and small retail and craft artisans, everybody had to pivot, so did you. So this is Nikki Nellis. I am on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. Did you know you can ask Alexa? Hey Alexa, turn on Real Fun DC. You can, and then you can hear me. We'll be back in just a sec. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, it's Nikki Nellis. Thanks for joining me on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. Uh, you know you can follow me everywhere at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Twitter, Instagram, and kind of on Facebook, but really Twitter and Instagram is the way to go. Uh, so today, Industry Night, first show of 2021. We are doing a little rearview mirror on 2020 and what happened in the restaurant industry, but also looking at our crystal ball for 2021. And with me today is food editor of the Washington City paper, Laura Hayes, and Ramon Santra with uh, Barden DC. So thank you both again for joining me. So March hits, everybody pivots. This changes everybody's coverage, right? Changed my coverage. I mean, I went from an advertorial website everything was free. I mean, I did free ads, free marketing, free social, free everything for over 80 people in the industry for nine months. So I know everybody had to make changes. Laura, you talked earlier about the change in the city paper. Uh, Ramon, let's start with you. How did you change your coverage uh, for BART in DC? So it's interesting as a lawyer, um, I actually shy away from being an advocate. Uh, my job is more of advisory. And so, I mean, so it was interesting. Barton to see has always been sort of more informational. This is this is what happened. Here it is. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think from day one, um, I realized that I have a voice. Bars and restaurants are so important to our lives as city dwellers, um, and that those that livelihood that that, that city was in jeopardy. And so I became, uh, you know, not on purpose, but I just, just started becoming a big advocate for the bars and restaurants in DC and um, on Twitter, on social media, um, you know, trying to get the word out about what, what the struggles were of these bars and restaurants. They were telling me, they were tagging me on their tweets and I was retweeting them or, or, or giving additional context. Um, in May, um, right before phase one started, um, I wrote a proposal, uh, basically a list of things, a call to action to the mayor and the DC council of different ideas they can do to improve the, the likelihood that these small businesses could survive. And so I think that was a big part of um, covering that pandemic is one, the advocacy. Um, and then two, I'd never seen a, a DC uh, press conference before. I mean, I, I mean, I, it's during the day, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I I have another job, but since I was at home during lunch, I spent lunch with Mayor Bowser and Dr. Nesbitt three times a week, basically. And it was just really interesting, uh, live tweeting those press conferences, sometimes uh, rewatching them um, to transcribe them. So there's all the context is out there to to people out there. And so it was really interesting um, getting that word out and just trying to get clearly described the new regulations out to the public now to the restaurants because there's a lot of confusion out there. Well, it is confusing. I mean, even today it's confusing. So, and um, I think breaking legalese, my sister's a lawyer, so I don't speak legalese, but she does. But, you know, being able to take that legalese and, and put it out for the layperson because not everybody can understand all of it or Google it, you know, this is, this is moving very, very fast. And especially in March and April, every day something new was happening it was constantly changing from you know people being allowed to sell liquor and then the whole park flats and the money available like there was so much information out there and let's be honest these people were trying to save their businesses so um digesting all of that is so important so you know laura we sort of made it through april and may and i feel like i i remember how i felt at the end of may i was like okay i can do this like i can i can figure out how to make this work Um, And I felt like the restaurants I was talking to and the people I was having on, I mean, every experience was, everybody's talking their experience. But then, you know, like I said earlier, the mirror was shown to our faces, uh, police brutality against the people of color community and Black Lives Matter and everything changed again, right? Like there was a real explosion in this city, especially with the protests um, and the chaos uh, from our government. Um, How did that change what you were doing? because you wrote some very important articles during that time period. Oh, thank you for that. Um, well, I mean, I would say that the energy was certainly new, but the problems um, absolutely were not. Um, you know, the, the restaurant industry has long had um, racism and, and sexism problems. Um, and I think though that, um, you know, the killing of, of unarmed uh, Black Americans that, you know, not just George Floyd, but Ahmaud Aubrey and um, Brianna Taylor. I mean, so many, so many, and countless others. Um, just you know, remind us that we have a lot of work to do, um, and that includes restaurants. Um, and so, you know, I tried whenever possible to pass the mic to some industry professionals that um, you know were were brave to come out and say, you know, what needs to change. Um, 
a lot of restaurants came out and made statements uh, that they said, um, describing how they were going to change their work culture, uh, make it more inclusive and, and not take advantage of black culture, but celebrate it, promote it, et cetera. Um, and I committed to circling back uh, with those restaurants on Juneteenth of 2021 to see what they actually did. And I know it's tough, you know, it, for the majority of this year when, when restaurants could have been doing this work, they were just trying to survive. But I think that it's so important that these things need to be happening on a parallel track. Um, and I do think that the pandemic has exposed just how valuable the workforce is in the hospitality industry. So I hope that um, you know people are, are, are more valued for what they bring to the table and their diverse perspectives. Um, but my favorite piece I wrote um, featured a whole bunch of women that Nikki, you and I know very well, um, women, black women who represent restaurants um, for public relations in DC. And they talked about, they unpacked like, you know, which, what kind of statements landed, what didn't, what felt hollow, what they'd like to see food media do differently. Um, and that's something that um, I think also hit the national stage a bit this year is, is the overwhelming whiteness of uh, food media, especially in leadership positions. And we saw kind of the unraveling of Bon Appetit, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. And I plan to kind of um, keep my foot on the gas um, on that uh, going forward. Well, I agree with you. And I, I think, I believe, and you both can correct me if you're wrong. I mean, all this kind of goes hand in hand, right? This pandemic did expose a lot of raw nerves and the culmination at the same time is, is not a bad thing. And the restaurant industry does have this opportunity to rebuild as we get to a healthier place, God willing, with the pandemic um, and hopefully financially. So the hope is, is that when we rebuild, we see these things now, right? We see, we see the undocumented workers who are obviously there and how do we make sure that they stay safe? We see the people of color who are not getting the representation they need or are treated poorly. Same thing with women um, and men. I mean, bullies are bullies. Do you know what I mean? You don't always, you know, there's, there's also people who are just jerks and who, you know, are the boss. So finding that is going to be important moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious, uh, Ramon, did that integrate into your coverage at all? Well, it's interesting because I've, you know, I've been a real focus, you know, laser focus the last seven years just on bars in DC and just sort of not dealing with the, the kinds of really important reporting that Laura does uh, about some of these social issues that she's always done. Um, but I think, a I think this has really given me pause. A lot of my readership, particularly, um, particularly the protests in DC and a lot of the, how the DC police um, treated or mistreated some of the protesters. Uh, I was getting tip, I mean, I was getting, um, you know, feedback from my, my followers who are loyal and they really appreciate the work that I do, that I need to, you know, pay some attention to this, let people know, because I do have a, um, you know, I have a soapbox, you know, I have 15,000 followers on Twitter now and people like read those tweets and I, I, I need to use that for certain things. So uh, I, I've definitely some, done some self-reflection in my role and, and I'm, I'm doing my, doing, trying to do better and, and, and focus on some of those bars and restaurants of, you know, that either cater to or are owned by people of color. Uh, I think, um, I, you know, I, I, I feed the Malik Anella. Um, she's done an amazing job of really focusing 
uh, using social media, Instagram, and her 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 other outlets, and like focusing on those outlets. And I've seen and right when that came out, I saw I think it was either or Washingtonian focus on a restaurant in Prince George's County. I'd never seen you know any article about a place opening like that before. So uh, I'm hoping that continues because I think there's a lot of there is a lot of people who you know have you know they do have money to spend or they're part of the industry and they they have something great to offer and i think people do want to patronize those spots but they don't you know people people don't want to necessarily do the work other than googling they want people to tell them where to go and so i think i saw that food media i think that's an excellent point and i and laura and i could both definitely speak to this and i'm sure you can too i mean i get a thousand pitches a day i mean i have multiple outlets you all get pitches so it's really hard sometimes to do the hard work, which is to look for what else is out there when you're not getting pitched on it. Exactly. Right? Because when you're getting bombarded and you're like, okay, I'm trying to, you know, accommodate with guests and whatever and and in the site and social media, like trying to accommodate everybody, it's hard to actually find that extra time to do the legwork for some of the other interesting things that are happening. But you're a hundred percent right. That's that's where the window was opened. You're like, right, you have to do it because there is so much going on. Um, and hopefully that continues. So now that we're here and um, I'm just sort of curious, was there any trends that you saw, both of you, um, that you were like, huh, that's a good idea. I hope that stays around. Like what, what were some of the things that you saw restaurants and bars doing that they're doing now too, um, that you kind of hope becomes the norm, whatever that new normal looks like moving forward? Well, from a bar's perspective, um, obviously take out cocktails and drinks. Um, DC has already legalized that permanently, which is great. And I expect uh, bars and restaurants continue doing that. It's, it's crazy now that we've gone through it, that it hasn't been always the case. So I'm glad that at least DC and I'm sure our local other jurisdictions will follow suit and legalize that permanently. So that's that's one thing that I see. Um, obviously, I think QR codes. I know there's a mixed reaction towards whether they um, are, um, you know, people find them a little bit uh, cold sometimes. But I think you'll see a lot more spots just because it, not to waste paper. I think and just to sort of speed up interactions. You might see a lot of that in the future. Um, well, but we'll I'm going to interrupt you to tell you, I mean, those QR codes were trying really, really hard prior to the pandemic, like GoTab, to really get into the market. And they were working with bars, because for bars, it was a no-brainer. You could order your drink in advance, you could pay for it. But restaurants were not interested, and it's fascinating to see that switch. So it will be interesting to see what its staying value is moving forward. Laura, how about you? What do you think? Um, so I, I focus a lot of my reporting on uh, ways that restaurants have done good things to go and, and for takeout, uh, just because I haven't felt comfortable recommending um, on-site dining um, as readily. Um, but uh, I highlighted three that I think are really exciting that I hope stick around. Um, the first of which are these ghost kitchens. Um, for listeners who don't know what they are, um, they're basically kind of an ancillary business that uses the same labor pool, the same equipment, but you can have a whole separate menu. And um, the most exciting ghost kitchens I found were when restaurants um, serve something more casual or something different from their 
usual cuisine, especially if it involved, you know, asking a line cook or a sous chef, like, hey, what are you good at? What do you cook at home? And, and um, letting them kind of shine. Um, so kind of that diversification of business that are for these delivery only restaurants. Um, and then I also enjoyed um, the meal kits that places like um, Nina May have put together with their um, program called Feast. Um, it's like, you feel like you cooked a little, but you also, you kind of felt like you were like the sous chef because he came with instructions and you just had to do some finishing at home. Um, and I thought that that's like a really fun interactive way to kind of bring a restaurant into your home. Um, and then I really liked the restaurants that um, organized meal drops uh, where they could get their, their food out to further audiences without having to fall into the traps of these third-party delivery services by you know, reaching out on a neighborhood listserv, um, like in Tacoma, DC and saying, Shook did this really well. Like we're coming, uh, get all your friends together, come to one location in a parking lot, pick up your food. And um, so those um, ways to kind of get restaurant food into people's homes, um, I think will stick around and I'm excited about them. Excellent. Well, I do want to talk about third party. And I also want to talk a little bit about takeaway and to go because uh, we have to take a break. But when we come back, I want to sort of talk about, I, I think there was a real concept problem for people who were used to maybe doing to go from their local Thai place, maybe the local sushi place or pizza, but then, you know, they would get these kits and they would have to cook and it, it there was a, there was a bit of a thing there with that. So this is Nikki Nella, Industry Night. We're going to be looking into our crystal ball when we come back. What's in store for 2021 in the restaurant industry in D.C.? We'll be back in just a sec. It's Industry Night with Mickey Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun D.C. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, I'm back. It's Nikki Nellis on Industry Night on Real Fun D.C. Did you know you can ask Alexa? Hey, Alexa, play Real Fun D.C. And then you can ask for me, Nikki Nellis on Industry Night. Also, don't forget to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, kind of, but really on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, so with me again, our guest, Laura Hayes, food, food editor of the Washington City Paper, and Ramon Santra, who is uh, the creator uh, and behind uh, the very informative Bard in DC. And um, we were talking about to go takeaway uh, before uh, the break. So it was really different and restaurants, I, we have to come up with another word for pivot, but restaurants did have to pivot and restaurants, you know, like the kinships and the iron gates and, you know, sort of more upscale and fine dining restaurants of this world had to figure out how to deliver their experience that you got in their restaurant and put it into a box and get it to your house. And, um, not everybody understood that when they got it to their house, it wasn't just getting thrown in the microwave, right? Like you may have to take out a pan and put some oil in it and cook it up a little bit. Um, did you hear a lot of pushback from readers or from people about that, Laura? Um, I mostly heard good things. Um, some restaurants really prove that you can like put hospitality in a box. You know, they would accompany the food with a playlist that you might've heard in their dining room. Rose's luxury, Rose's luxury included like a bottle of their hand soap that like people just remember that smell and associate it with the restaurant. Um, I personally um, struggled a little bit in the beginning when restaurants um, like Tale of Goat, for example, first rolled out these experiences. Um, my kit did not include instructions. This actually happened to me with Rose's Luxury too. 
Um, and so I'm sitting there eating this cold food and being like, I must, something must not be going well. Uh, but I think they caught on and started adding more and more detailed instructions. Um, I remember interviewing um, the owner of Republic Cantina and he's like, yeah, you'd be surprised. Like people would call and be like, we don't understand these instructions. And it's like literally, it was like super simple. And so it was eye-opening to them that there are people who, because of their life circumstances, maybe they work two jobs and have two kids, can't cook and, and they wanted to partake. But um, so they really had to get granular with those instructions. And I think that most restaurants have caught on to that by now. Absolutely. Um, Ramon, what about for you? Um, did you partake a lot in the third party conversation? You must have been hearing a lot from restaurants about that, um, especially with all the your legal background. What did you find with that? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Uh, the third party delivery, obviously, before the pandemic, uh, a lot of restaurants um, who, who try to use them, they were getting hit with 30% commission which, you know, maybe is a cost of doing business when you're selling a couple of meals a day, but when 100% of your meals are being, or, or drinks and food are being sold uh, to go or by delivery, that's going to really kill you. So you, from day one, you were hearing from restaurants and bars that felt they had to be on these third-party delivery services because they, you know, it takes a lot to ramp up to get delivery and they just were getting killed. And so um, you were hearing a lot uh, about the, the commission. Once the commission, um, DC council decided to drop the commission to 15%, Laura did some great reporting about Postmates and how they were not uh, compliant. And then you, she did it again with DoorDash and how they were not, they're being very cute in a very legal <laughs> sense. I, I mean, I don't know if I would hire their lawyers uh, <laughs> after that, but that was, that was very creative. Uh, that's what we would say in the law, very creative um way with doing that so yeah i heard all the time but on the other hand you would hear from some restaurants who were kind of thought that the um the hating on essentially the third party delivery was counterproductive because they might be in an area where it's where it's low density and they want to be able to get their goods across town to another neighborhood where people like their food and so i i definitely heard from restaurants who said no don't tell people not to order from third party delivery because that's going to hurt us. So that was that was something that was kind of unexpected. Um, but in the end, I, I always tell people, take out, call or use their web, website of, the internet, of a restaurant. If they will tell you which third-party delivery service they are comfortable with you using, and that that tells you something. So I think um, you know it's it was it's just always a, it was a balance between convenience and you know helping the business. Well, it sort of goes back to the days of Open Table when Open Table was, you know, the problem because they were, you know, sort of raping the restaurants uh, for these reservations. Um, and it's, it's very similar. Restaurants needed Open Table because it was sort of the only game in town, but they were getting killed by them. And now, you know, same sort of thing, even though there's multiple uh, platforms to use to order. Um, it, it is. It's a, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of concept, right? And I think everybody's looking for ways to get around it. And also, I will say the skip the line people are doing something very interesting uh, because they are allowing restaurants to go way beyond the, um, the usual, you know, three or four mile radius. Uh, it's, almost, uh, it's almost like a 10 or 12 mile radius. I mean, it's a huge jump. Um, so I think it's really interesting what they're uh, doing as well. So as we're moving along and we're, we're, let's look into our crystal ball just a little bit for uh, 2021. Um, 
I mean, obviously we all hope we get vaccinated in a reasonable amount of time and people feel more comfortable going out. Um, Laura, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the labor model and actually uh, Ramon, you as well. Like, what do you think, we've talked a little bit about uh, the correct wage and things of that nature. Obviously we have to wait for this week, maybe until Biden gets into office for things to really change. But what would be like your dream based on what you're hearing from restaurants on what sort of the new labor model looks like for the restaurants? Oh gosh, um, that's a tough question. Um, my priority honestly um, is doing whatever it takes to get kitchen workers um, to make more money. That's kind of always been a, a dream of mine. Uh, so much attention, um, especially during the Initiative 77 battle was um, kind of placed on servers and bartenders, but you know, nine times out of 10, uh, they far out earn people in the kitchen um, who kind of don't have an opportunity to earn more um, per hour than their hourly wage. And I monitor wage theft really carefully in DC and I'm always checking on, on what restaurants are being sued. And again, nine times out of 10, it's usually a kitchen laborer and you know not a server bartender or host. Um, and so, you know, the, the service charge um, model that's becoming increasingly more popular that people have been experimenting with um, is interesting uh, because basically it, it adds a mandatory charge onto your bill. Um, and then the restaurant, it becomes property of the restaurant owner who can then decide how to distribute it. Um, so you, of course, have to have trust that you're you have a good restaurant owner who's doing you know, their best to, to distribute funds equitably. Um, but that allows people in the kitchen to share in that um, extra money, uh, where previously a gratuity, which is optional, um, has to go directly to the person or persons who took care of you or, or the pool of people who took care of people in the front of the restaurant. Um, so I know that you know, servers and bartenders probably aren't wild about, about that. Um, Restaurants that do a service charge and then an optional line for additional gratuity might be a way to kind of ease some of their um, concerns. But I really just want to see, um, you know, these these people who are work morning till night doing all of the hard like, prep work and are in front of hot stoves and sharp knives um, get paid more. I think that's great. Ramon, what about you? Yeah, I think um, particularly with the wage issue, the service charges, I think, there is confusion by restaurants as well as customers about what that means. Um, legally, a service charge is mandatory, as Laura says, that becomes property of the restaurant. But a lot of times restaurants will say, oh, this is, they call, they'll call it a gratuity. They'll call it a mandatory tip. And so that, that becomes sort of, uh, lack of a better term, false advertising. And that causes a lot of confusion. And I think, you know, the restaurants are tr trying their best uh when they're doing that and and but and so there just needs to be more education but you don't want to see restaurants and bars who are trying to do the right thing get dinged um uh you know and they can get dinged and so i think it's just more of education i hosted a guest post from scott rome who's, who's a, a nightlife laura a lawyer lawyer <laughs> uh and uh to try to explain those things and, and i i've tried to when i can tweet out you know a question people will ask me like there was a lot of questions I got about those service charges during the pandemic and what that was. And um, to me, the, the only issue, and I think Laura said the same thing, if it's upfront, it's about being upfront. You know, if it's stacked on, you didn't see it on the menu, you didn't know it coming in. That's when the problem comes from uh, customer uh, and uh, visibility, transparency 
standpoint, both from a legal and just a reputational standpoint. But you know, it's interesting. Um, first of all, there needs to be an, uh, a cultural shift, right, on how we dine at restaurants. I am hoping, personally for me, that's my hope for the future of the restaurant industry is that the, the diner is more educated. We have a very educated diner who eats in this city, without a doubt, especially when it comes to the food and the chefs, but not so much about the money and the business. And I do believe that that needs to be a bigger part of the communication from journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Laura, you could totally speak to this, but I mean, for a long time, you know, people would be like, yeah, they don't want to know about the business of the restaurant. You know, they just, they want to be foodies. They want to know about the food and they want to know who the chef is. But in order for the restaurant, for the industry itself to change, the consumer has got to be educated about how that business works. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ramon, I think you think, uh, you bring up a really good point about these service charges, but Think about our like cell phone bills or hotel bills or airlines. I mean, how many extra fees are there? Remember when you used to buy a ticket, like to go fly somewhere? Um, there were so many like fees and so, I mean, I don't know what any of those were. And yet we would just pay it. But when it comes to a restaurant, man, people are so hardcore and, and feel like, like they deserve something, you know, whether it's something for free or a free drink or, so I just, I think the collective, the consumer has to change their attitude mm-hmm. when it comes to dining yeah. in a restaurant next. I, yeah. I, Go ahead, Ramon. Yeah, one thing I've really been impressed by, and I think it needs to continue, are bars and restaurants telling their customers on social media or their website about these financial realities. I think so many people, to see the prices of restaurants in DC, which a lot of places are still deflated and think these people are making millions of dollars. They're like living the hog, which is not. The restaurant industry is such a low margin, high risk industry. I think people, it's, it's so upsetting to me as someone in, who follows this, every time some place that permanently closes, even before the pandemic, all these people were like shocked. I can't believe it. It looks like there are so many people there. Well, that's, you know, it's, it's I hope, restaurants really understand that it's people feel connected to the restaurants they go to the bars they go to and they want to be they want to help when they can but if they don't know necessarily what's going on you know you know I think learning about Sunday ticket NFL how much that costs I think that those kinds of things are eye-opening to the consumer and and you're right DC uh, diners are educated and they need to learn about the business as well yeah I I think that oh sorry I should have said educated palate yeah. It's very educated palates, right? So, and it's, yeah. a, it's a well-off community for the most part that dines out. Uh, but that just because they're well-off doesn't mean they know how it works. Sorry, Laura, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, I think that, you know, we're seeing these things converge. Um, I think that interest is growing to, to get to know the nooks and crannies of this industry, because honestly, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a total mess. Um, and I, I know the interest is there. Um, the, the most traffic I've ever received on a story uh, it was called Profit and Sauce, and I broke down, I had four or five restaurants break down what it costs to make their, their signature dish, um, you know, including labor, including rent, including tax, including every utilities, everything, um, and like Bontai, which is now Bontai Am, makes 71 cents off of their most popular dish, and I think, um, I still refer back to that piece all the time. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's really eye-opening for people. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think in 2021, um, 
I'm like the Grim Reaper with all this news today, but I think people need to pay more for their food. Um, especially, you know, we learned a lot about what working conditions are like in our, our meatpacking plants. And so there's going to be a shift towards better sourcing. And we want, we want restaurant workers who we've, we've learned to care about during the pandemic. We want them to have benefits. That's going to cost money. Um, you know, for so long, so long decades, Nikki, you probably agree. Like you've either, you're either a $30 and under entree place or you're a $30 and over entree place. That number hasn't moved. And while appetizers are small plates, there's been price creep there. Well, there's... and let's not forget rents. I mean, oh, yeah. for me, one of the biggest culprits, and I'm not blaming uh, the real estate people, I'm blaming the real estate market. And I'm sure Ramon, you could speak much better about this from a legal standpoint, but the numbers in this city, what they charge per square foot, I, I don't even understand the math the half the time. I'm always like, when I see some of these restaurants open, I'm like, I would love to see that, uh, you know, business proposal on that because I'd love to know the math and I suck at math. I'm just saying, but I would love to know the math on how they think they can make those numbers with everything else you said, right. With labor, with uh, product, with getting it to the table, with HVAC, everything else. And then the number on just the square footage. I mean, that's one of the biggest changes I, I believe that has to take place. There has to be a reassessment of real estate. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've heard folks in the industry, I, I know that some places already use this, but percentage-based rent, you know, based on profits, um, it's, it's, it's really confounding to me, you know, covering this and all the people who read it, why landlords seem to prefer an empty space rather than a space that's being used by a, a successful, you know, restaurant. And so those are kinds of things that our, our policymakers need to be looking at ways to sort of mitigate and address because you're right, rent, you know, learning about the rent is always, just, you know, people are just shocked. You know, $20,000 a month is not, you know, that seems, that's actually probably on the low end for a lot of these spots. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's insane. It is insane. So I, that's my crystal ball. I hope in 2021 that there is a, uh, look into the real estate into DC. Um, I love that there's all this money spent on on reinvigorating these areas, but we already know it means they're pushing people out, which is not working. And uh, it's not working for the businesses either. So there has to be a way to integrate it so that small retail can be here, independent restaurants can survive, and not just survive, but also thrive going into the future. You know, razor thin margins should be stricken from our vocabulary. So that is my hope for 2021. Laura, what is your hope for 2021 for the restaurant industry? Take the vaccine off the table, take the pandemic off the table. What do you hope moving forward? Uh, just better lives for, for workers, better quality of life. Um, and that, you know, is a multi-pronged approach. Um, you know, for starters, we need more affordable housing so that the people that work in the city can live in the city so they have more time to enjoy themselves outside of work, which they have very little time to do. I want them to have health insurance. I want them um, to feel supported and valued. You know, for so long, restaurant workers um, were kind of maligned as this group that couldn't find a path elsewhere in life. And so they fell into this and that's just not true anymore. And these are professionals who are often leaving desk jobs at the Pentagon, at a law firm. And because they love, they love the hospitality industry. They love um, interacting with, with people and they love food and, and wine. 
Um, so I just want to see their, their quality of life improve. And I want the city to kind of take their needs more seriously. Um, the pandemic exposed um, just how terrible our city's unemployment um, website is. And, you know, there certainly could be um, things that happen in the future that uh, cause mass layoffs again. So I hope they get that fixed. Terrific. And Ramon, what about from you? Yeah, aside from the pandemic and the vaccine, I think uh, we before the pandemic, we had started seeing uh, neighbor, more neighborhood restaurants and bars, um, affordable spots, uh, but not, you know, not because they're selling cheap food, but because they just what the clientele they're going for, they're, they're you know, they are just people that can come in every every week and stop by and just that those are places that create a community, just as much as you know, the, the very chef driven spots we have. And so I think I hope those continue and, you know, uh, I, you know, it might be tough, but that's what I'm hoping. Well, I really appreciate your time. I mean, I feel like there's so much more we could get into, but unfortunately the show is over. So I want to thank uh, both of you for joining me today. And I want to thank um, our listeners too. Um, it is so important as we kick off 2021 that you think about uh, the small artisans, the small local retail, um, I know Amazon is super convenient and I know going to Target or someplace like that may be easier because it's all there for you. But there are lots of local workers who really need the support right now. So a couple suggestions. Uh, Laura talked about neighborhood drops earlier. Get your neighborhood together. I do this once a month. I put an email out to my entire neighborhood and say, hey, I'm ordering from X. Who wants? And then I go down and I pick it all up and I bring it back for the whole neighborhood. It's a great way to give a restaurant a big boost on a single night. Also gift cards, just buy them, have them and then use them later or give them as gifts, whatever it is, any way you can invest in the local community right now, if you can, that would be terrific. Uh, so lastly, again, Laura Hayes and Ramon Santra, thank you both for joining me today. Uh, can you both give your social media handles because they're very important? Laura? Oh, oh, sure. On Twitter, I'm at Laura Hayes DC and Instagram, I'm at BT Menu. Long story, don't ask. Uh, how about you, Ramon? <laughs> uh, Twitter is just Bard in DC. Um, and on Instagram is the real Bard in DC. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like another story. And I'm Nikki Nellis at NYCCINELLIS on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, and you're listening to me on Real Fun DC Industry Night. I want to thank my guests again. Uh, please go out and really spend some money at those restaurants, whether you bring it home, sit outside, or buy some gift cards. Uh, next week's show is gonna be terrific. We have the crew from Call Your Mother coming in because if you wanna talk about restaurants that are growing in the middle of a pandemic, they would be them. So thank you again for joining me. Mask up, dip your body in hand sanitizer. Hopefully you get vaccinated soon and be safe. I'll see you next week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.